This is Macro Voices with hedge fund manager Eric Townsend, the free weekly financial podcast targeting professional finance, high net worth individuals, family offices, and other sophisticated investors. Macro Voices is all about the brightest minds in the world of finance and macroeconomics telling it like it is, bullish or bearish, no holds barred. Now, here are your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Serezna. Macro Voices episode 236 was recorded on September 10th, 2020. I'm Eric Townsend. This episode is brought to you by TopTradersUnplugged.com, a podcast dedicated to quant and rules-based investing, helping investors overcome behavioral biases, and by FarmTogether.com, bringing farmland a new trillion-dollar investment opportunity within reach of all accredited investors. Logica Fund's chief strategist, Mike Green, joins me as this week's feature interview guest. Mike's received quite a lot of attention for his research on the reflexive effects of passive investing on market price action. So we'll start there before moving on to the U.S. dollar, inflation, gold, digital reserve currencies, and much more. Then be sure to stay tuned for our post-game segment after the feature interview when Patrick and I will discuss everything from the S&P 500 to gold, Tesla, and a whole bunch more. And I'm Patrick Serezna. Now, Eric, where do we start this week? Well, I want to start before we even get to stocks with the, the big picture that I'm thinking about is I'm really convinced that, unfortunately, the political unrest, the civil unrest in the United States is most likely to escalate really from now through Inauguration Day, not Election Day, but Inauguration Day. And in fact, I think it's the period from Election Day to Inauguration Day that is probably going to be the most tumultuous. And the reason I say that is we've got a situation here where both sides have already said they're not going to concede the election when it appears that they've lost. And I think the setup for now is, of course, we're already seeing an escalation of unrest. But for now, everybody can kind of hope that their guy wins. Once we get to Election Day, I think that for the first time in years, the whole country will agree on one thing, which is my guy won. Whoever I voted for won the election. Everybody will be convinced that their candidate won, and they'll, they'll be convinced that it was clear and obvious and everyone should agree, and they won't. And that really sets up what I think could be extreme contention first in the nation's history, which is really there's not that much time for court cases and so forth to play out between Election Day and Inauguration Day. So from Election Day at the beginning of November until Inauguration Day on the 20th of January, uh, I think we really are looking at the potential for a situation where there is extreme disagreement, division, and unfortunately violence in the United States. Because because everybody disagrees about who is really the president at that point. Now, what does it mean for markets? Obviously, the instinctive, intuitive thing is, well, that must be very bearish for markets. Realize that if you look at history and what it teaches us, civil unrest, like occurred in 1968, really is not that much of a negative influence on markets, and sometimes very similar to what happens when a war breaks out. 
Everybody says, oh my God, a war, sell everything quick, it's a war. Then they realize, wait a minute, if you look at history, wars are generally positive for the stock market. And after a brief panic down, you end up seeing a steady climb. Certainly, if those predictions play out, it's going to mean more accommodation from the Fed. Potentially, that leads us to asset prices, including stocks, moving even higher. So I don't pretend to know how it's going to play out, but unfortunately, my prediction is it's going to be a lot of turbulence between now and the middle of January. All right. Well, let's jump into that S&P 500. The correction continued at the start of the week. We finally got the bounce. What's your take on the S&P here? Well, clearly the correction itself is no surprise after the parabolic rise that we were seeing. The correction could be over, but you know, as I look at the chart, I mean, you're the technician in the house, Patrick, but as I look at this chart, I see about a 3230 level on S&P futures as what seems to me like the logical test of support where resistance used to be. That was, you know, the the previous high that we had a a few months ago. I, I would expect to maybe retest that level. So it feels to me, like this is the dead cat bounce and the correction's not over yet. But frankly, we've had uh, a lot of surprise strength in this stock market. Maybe it's over. I don't know. All right. Well, we'll talk more about that in the post game because I have a chart that I want to talk about on the S&P. But anyway, let's move on to that US dollar because it really felt like the US dollar was gaining some traction. Definitely some volatility in the last 24 hours, particularly on this ECB monetary policy statement. But overall, the dollar is nowhere near the lows it was at the start of September. Do you think we're forming a bottom or is there more downside? I don't think you can make an argument based on technicals that we're forming a bottom. Clearly, we're seeing a textbook bounce off of that low close below 92, or I guess it was an intraday below 92. We never closed below 92 in the dollar index. At 93 spot 18, as we're speaking on Thursday afternoon, mid-session, I think you got to see a daily close above 94 to make a technical argument that says a trend reversal is in play. This looks to me like a consolidation. Maybe it's ending. Maybe not. uh, Can't tell. Certainly, if my civil unrest predictions prove true, that potentially could be a, a negative catalyst for more downside. And perhaps the bottom is not in yet. Well, let's move on to crude oil because I really wanted your take on this. We were just hovering above that 50-day moving average last week uh, when we were doing the session and suddenly uh, it gave out and we saw definitely some heavy selling that saw us solidly below 40 and heading now down, at least on the October contract, down to the 37 handle. What's your uh, take here on crude? Well, finally, the downside correction that I've been calling for for, what, better than two months now is finally upon us. I don't think it's over yet. I mean, you, you certainly in, in the last 24 hours, we've got a pretty um, voracious bounce here that's, that's going on. That bounce was arrested when we got inventory data today. The expectations people had was for another drawdown in inventory, but it turned out to be a build. Now, remember, we're still coming out of the tropical storm action. And for the weeks immediately after any kind of big weather upset, the data is always a little bit suspect. But what we're seeing is a crude oil build of 2 million 
million barrels. Cushing, Oklahoma, building 1.8 million barrels. The finished products drawing down substantially. Gasoline drawing down 3 million barrels. Distillates drawing down 1.7 million barrels. U.S. production bouncing back up because, of course, the big, big drawdown last week of more than a million barrels was because of the tropical storm shutting in most of the Gulf of Mexico. We're back up 300,000 barrels this week to 10 million even. Uh, I think it's going to got further to bounce to the upside, and it's probably not going to be until we get into Q4 that that real decline that Art Berman has talked about starts to set in and hit us. The tape action, you know, it looked like we maybe had the, the beginnings of a healthy recovery from this big sell-off. I really don't think it's over yet. I think we've got further to go to the downside. But to whatever extent there was a recovery, the inventory report kind of stopped it. But it didn't bring about a resumption of selling to new lows. So I think the market's just consolidating, trying to figure out what's next. My best guess is the bottom is not in yet. I think this is that bounce that you typically see halfway through a big move. We come from 43 down to, what, 36 spot 25 or 30 was the low, and uh, I think we're going to see this bounce play out and probably get down into the low 30s before it's over. As far as what's driving this, all of the most knowledgeable people that I follow are really focusing on refinery runs. They're saying, yeah, there's a lot of reason to expect that U.S. production is going to decline into the fourth quarter. But guess what? Refinery runs are telling us that demand might be declining even faster than expected declines in supply in coming months. So that demand destruction concern really being driven by reported refinery runs seems to be what's driving the bearishness in the market. Uh, As I said, I doubt the bottom is in. We ought to get Art Berman back at some point because he certainly had predictions that in Q4, U.S. production was going to fall off a cliff. We thought that would be bullish. But of course, if demand is going to fall off a cliff, well, that complicates the situation. So we'll have to look into getting Art back at some point. All right. Well, let's uh, get an update here on gold because there was obviously a a top and a quick correction in the first two weeks of August. Uh, But really since then, gold has been more or less within like a $50 trade range, give or take up or down. And we really haven't seen a resolution in any directional trend. What's your thinking on uh, where gold is headed next? Well, we certainly have seen some upside this week, but as far as I'm concerned, as you said, it's still a consolidation pattern. We haven't broken above that upper resistance line on the wedge or triangle formation, whatever you want to call this this formation that has occurred since that sudden correction to the downside. Frankly, I hope as a gold bull that this correction is not over yet. Uh, as a bull, I, I would really like to see this market clean itself up, a nice healthy big correction back down to test 1800, which was the most significant recent resistance level on the way up. Let's go test that as support before continuing this uh, secular bull market. Uh, I'd like to see that happen. I'd buy a little bit more just above 1800. As far as where we are right now, though, it's a consolidation pattern. It's not clear whether it's going to break up or down from here. All right. Well, let's leave off by just touching on those 10-year treasury yields, because I personally thought we'd see a bit of a a more of a reaction, considering that the markets have started this volatile break to the downside. But really, we've been pinned in this incredibly tight range. We're now trading around 68 basis points on the 10-year U.S. treasury yield. Do you have any opinions here? Does, Does this make a big move here? 
Well, if I'm right about civil unrest increasing, it probably would suggest lower treasury yields during that event. The counterside of that is I think it's going to become very clear that people will demand that there be more accommodation to Main Street, not to Wall Street. Uh, I think MMT is definitely coming, and that maybe sets the stage for a return of inflation expectations, which would have the opposite effect. So I really don't have a strong view. As our regular listeners know, I'm trying to ask all of our featured interview guests their views on this, and certainly Mike Green is a perfect guy to ask. I'll be asking him these questions as well. This week's featured interview guest is Logica Fund's chief strategist, Mike Green. Eric, why did we invite Mike onto the show this week? Well, Mike is a guy who, frankly, most of our listeners probably never heard of before. He's been kind of locked away behind a compliance wall in uh, his previous jobs. Now in his uh, role as chief strategist at Logica, he's doing some writing and getting out and doing media interviews. And boy, I really have to hand it to our good friend Grant Williams and uh, his cohort, Bill Fleckenstein, who did just a terrific interview with Mike, which really goes into depth on the research Mike's done on passive investing and its reflexive effects on the market. We're going to do a a quick summary of that because I I think it's very interesting, but we're actually going to defer to Grant's interview. He did such a beautiful job. I'm going to encourage our listeners to listen to that. You'll find the link to Grant's interview with Mike in your research roundup email. We're going to do a, a quick summary of that topic to start this interview, and then we'll launch into a number of other topics that Mike hasn't been talking about in his other media interviews. Listeners, we know many of you agree with us that we're the best financial podcast on the internet because that's what iTunes and Apple Podcasts used to say about us. Unfortunately, we haven't been reminding you to do those ratings and reviews, which keep us in our number one slot, which we really feel like we deserve. And by the way, that's what helps us get the very best feature guests to come on the program. So your ratings and reviews really do help us to get better feature interviews for your future listening pleasure. Writing a five-star review for Macro Voices is simple. The instructions step-by-step are in your research roundup email. This episode was made possible by TopTradersUnplugged.com. In recent weeks, we've been reminded of the fragility of world financial markets and how quickly sentiment can shift from risk-on to risk-off. Once again, the mantra of buy the dip and the determination of central banks will be put to the test. But as Chris Cole recently told us, The best approach to investing in the long run is very different from what's worked best in recent decades. To help Macro Voices listeners navigate an uncertain future, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, host of the Top Traders Unplugged podcast, has created a guide to the best investment books of all time. You can get a free copy at toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro guide. And be sure to listen to my full-length interview with Niels Kastrup-Larsen on trend following. The download link is in your research roundup email. Check out toptradersunplugged.com today. You'll be glad you did. Eric's interview with Mike Green is coming up as Macro Voices continues right here at macrovoices.com. And now with this week's special guest, here's hedge fund manager, Eric Townsend. Joining me now is Mike Green, chief strategist and portfolio manager for Logica Funds. 
Mike, it's great to get you on the show. This one is, uh, I think, overdue. You, you've really gotten a lot of popularity lately since you came out from hiding behind the compliance wall that you used to hide behind. Let's start with a topic that I know you've touched on recently in another podcast you did with our good friends Grant Williams and Bill Fleckenstein. They did a, a series called the Stock Market Endgame, or I guess it was just called the Endgame. And it was fascinating to me to listen to because... I used to say the exact same thing almost that Bill said in that series, which is, hey, look, this whole stock market rally since 2009, it's, it's been artificially propelled by monetary policy, not by economic fundamentals. It's artificial and therefore it has to end badly someday. There has to be uh, eventually a crash of the stock market or something because there's no free lunch in finance. That's just not how it works. I've changed my view. I, I don't really think that's true anymore. I think that it has to end badly, but it's not necessarily nominal down in the stock market. Now, you've done a bunch of research that I think is maybe a little different. I was thinking on the MMT lines of, of why maybe we just end up seeing more money printing and, and more inflation and asset prices going up, not down in nominal terms. You've got maybe a different explanation for why we might see that upside. So first of all, do you think I'm right to consider that maybe the stock market doesn't really have to crash ever? after all, just because of this so-called artificial stimulus. And how do you see it? What are the drivers? Uh, let's review some of the research that you've done on active-passive. So I, I, I definitely think that you are both actually hitting on a key point, which is, is that the market is, quote-unquote, unhealthy, right? So the behavior that we're seeing, most of us who have been involved with markets for an extended period of time, can rationally look at it and say something is off. And a lot of people put it at the feet of the Fed. My analysis suggests that a more important force is actually the change in market structure driven by the growth of passive investing. And, you know, in just really simple terms, the introduction of passive investing changes the character and the behavior of market participants, moving it from a discretionary purchase decision where cash is a legitimate asset that can be held when valuations or economic fundamentals suggest that investing in securities would be unattractive. When you move to a passive framework, it becomes rules literally as simple as, did you give me cash? If so, then buy. And in reverse, did you ask for cash? If so, then sell. With no consideration for the underlying fundamentals or the economic backdrop in which the events are occurring. That change and the reduction in cash that those funds hold versus traditional vehicles in our analysis, is actually responsible for the vast majority of the price increase that we've seen relative to the fundamentals. Absolutely, there was an improvement after 2009 as the global financial crisis came to an end that supported uh, recovery in asset prices. And certainly activities like corporate share buybacks have contributed, as others have noted. But by far, the dominant feature appears to be this dynamic of passive investing. And as a result, I tend to think that we need to consider both. I think it would be silly to say that markets can't crash roughly five months after they just did, right? But I also think that it's very difficult to argue that until those dynamics change, until the flow of money into passive changes, that we're going to see a significant change in the character of this behavior. And I do think there's a very real risk that we break markets by having them go too high. 
Let's talk a little more about what you just said. You, you said the, the mechanics here are there's, there's no thought to economics. It's basically investors give asset managers money. If so, buy. If investors took money away from asset managers, then sell. Well, the second half of that, I think if we go back to, to Bill Fleckenstein's logic is, okay, that means at some point you get a self-reinforcing vicious cycle of withdrawals where investors are taking money away from asset managers. Uh, a driver of that might be something like demographics around aging baby boomers, you know, leading to the beginning of something that develops into a self-reinforcing vicious cycle. So does there have to be, you know, a bad ending for the stock market when eventually that process reverses and what you're seeing is investors taking money away from asset managers is somehow something changes in the world and passive is no longer the thing anymore? Well, first, I think it's very difficult to have passive no longer be the thing, because I think the arguments for it and the regulatory advantage that have been conferred on it are so extraordinary at this stage that we're probably going to see this to its logical conclusion. Right. So in just in really simple terms, most people think about passive in terms of an aggregate share where it's somewhere between, you know, most would say somewhere between 40 and 45 percent of the total market. We think it's about 44 percent right now. If you look at those characteristics and split them by demographics for those in the younger generation, the vast majority of their exposure in excess of 90 plus percent of their exposure to markets as we know them is through passive products. For those in the older generation, it's much closer to 20%. And so the dynamics in terms of passive penetration suggest that we're going to move increasingly rapidly to a world that looks more and more passive. And under that type of framework, the models that I have suggest that you should largely expect to see an inflationary condition, right? Not inflation in terms of consumer prices, but inflation in terms of the price that people will be willing to pay and the prices that we'll see in securities markets. On the other side of that equation, though, is when that is happening, effectively, you could be thinking about the velocity or the volatility of those events as accelerating, right? So I've used the analogy. It's just, it's like trying to explain to people that the brakes are broken in a car that is traveling uphill. It's actually somewhat irrelevant until you start to head downhill, right? And then you hit a moment of panic and you're fine as long as the road turns back up at some point. But if you've crested the mountain and come down the other side, and you have no brakes, it becomes a very scary situation. We saw something like that, I would argue, in March, right? That characteristic, like there's no, you know, there's no absolute level that you can point to and say it has to turn down from here when you're talking about this type of dynamic of moving from a population set that holds the majority of the assets that are roughly 20% passive to a population set that will slowly accumulate those assets through contributions to 401ks, bequests, et cetera. That doesn't necessarily have to turn down, but the dynamics of gravity or the dynamics of how markets are structured suggest that at some point it's actually likely to. Now, the simple example for that would be those who are buying in and contributing are doing so in a somewhat linear fashion, right? Their contributions are tied to their incomes. On the other side of the equation, those who are making withdrawals, whether it's because they're hitting retirement age demographics, as you suggest, they are typically taking a fraction or a percentage of their profit or percentage of their securities out, right? When they do that, it means that ultimately you have an increasing mismatch between the contributions coming in from incomes and the withdrawals that are coming out from withdrawals. And that would suggest that there will be a topping point, right? That, that that's going to happen. Now, 
That, of course, has happened in the past. And actually, that's very much what happened in 2002. And you saw the stock market crash over the summer of 2002 into July, August, September. In response to that, we have repeatedly seen central banks or policymakers step in to create substantive changes, whether that is inflating the value of bonds by cutting interest rates, directly purchasing securities, as we've seen in other geographies, changing the 401k rules, right, so that contributions can be delayed for a longer period of time or that they can be increased or to create tax incentives for employers to increase their contributions and thereby raise the quantity of money that is going in. Those are all actions that I think that we should anticipate. Ultimately, it's a question of will you be aggressive enough to stop it, right? And will you permanently break the markets at some point? To me, that's unknowable, right? So we remain agnostic. The trading position that we take at, at Logica is effectively we buy straddles. We want to participate in both directions. Listeners, I'm going to take a quick break here. I wanted to start with this topic of the influence of passive investing on the market. Give you a little bit of a teaser of that because Mike's work in this space is obviously really, really groundbreaking, I think. We've got a couple of resources for you to go further on this. The first is a slide deck you'll find linked in your research roundup email, which gives a bunch of graphs and charts supporting this discussion of the influence of the transition from active to passive investing. Now, we could easily spend the rest of today's interview entirely on that topic. The thing is, our good friend Grant Williams did such a fantastic job of that on a podcast that's already been recorded. I'd really like to get to new ground with Mike in today's podcast. Podcast. We're going to just go ahead and give you a link to Grant Williams' podcast, along with Bill Fleckenstein, interviewing in much greater detail Mike on this subject of the transition from active to passive and its systemic and reflexive impacts on the market. It's really fascinating stuff. I recommend that you download the chart deck from the Macro Voices Research Roundup. Have that in front of you when you listen to Mike's interview with Grant and Bill. Let's move on, Mike, to a few other topics. Now, you think about this whole stock market, where is it headed, what's the ultimate endgame? In terms of the passive trend, a lot of people, and I'm not sure if they're right or wrong, uh, I've definitely kind of gotten on board with this myself lately, have felt like, look, since 2009, ever since quantitative easing has been the thing, it seems like the stock market can only go up. So there's some transmission mechanism, although people seem to disagree on the extent to which it exists, uh, how much of it is just expectation versus reality. Somehow it seems like when the Fed expands its balance sheet, the money all ends up in the stock market. And a lot of people are thinking that with the rapidly growing political popularity of MMT, that probably that trend is set to continue. How do you see this? Are the people who think QE drives the stock market right? Or are they wrong? If so, in either direction, why? And what about MMT? How does that change the game? Well, so in simple terms, like there's nobody who's right or wrong until history tells us which what's the right answer, right? So we have our view on that. There is obviously an impact from QE, right? There is a, when, when the Fed goes out and expands its balance sheet, in particular, if it is using the expansion of that balance sheet to purchase assets from the private sector, it's doing two things. One is it's raising the price of those assets, right? Because they become protected to the downside. Effectively, you're abrogating the left tail, right? You're also in some situations forcing people to find alternate uses of that capital, right? So if I buy a, a uh, 
corporate bond from a hedge fund, they now have cash that they have to deploy and potentially have more cash than it was marked on their book or the way they were treating it if they had had to sell it to a third party into an illiquid market, right? So those dynamics absolutely create stimulus and absolutely support asset prices, right? The question is, does that actually flow through in any meaningful way into economic activity? And we're not seeing any meaningful evidence of that, right? Among other things, you know, if we look at the pace of growth associated with those dynamics, we don't see an awful lot of evidence of it, right? Where we see market-based measures like inflation expectations as proxied by tips, you know, those tend to show the sort of recovery that, that people would refer to. But there's an alternate explanation for that that's embedded in terms of how those are calculated, right? Tips themselves have a premium associated with volatility in one form or another. So I'm skeptical that it does what people think it does. On the MMT front, I completely agree that that is growing in importance and credibility. We have not yet meaningfully seen the impact of that. Right. The supports that we've seen in terms of a variant of universal basic income for those who are on unemployment was a very brief and fleeting experience that we've seen for give or take four months in the United States and in some other geographies to a lesser measure. But we're a long way away from a world in which everybody is receiving a significant guaranteed income from the government and the government has almost no considerations for how that actually plays through. Right. So if that MMT world were actually in place, I would expect that we would have seen a, a much more aggressive expansion of corporate profits, of household incomes, et cetera. And the evidence is, is weak at this stage that that's in play. Going back to your comment about quantitative easing not feeding through to the real economy, only affecting asset markets. Uh, proponents of MMT would say that was the injustice of bailing out Wall Street at the expense of Main Street. And the whole idea of MMT is it's going to use balance sheet expansion uh, of the central bank in order to deliver real benefits and results to the broader actual real economy. Skeptics of MMT have said, yeah, that's true, but it's going to result in runaway inflation because as you're delivering money into the real economy, not just into the financial economy, now you're going to start to experience runaway consumer price inflation. Are those arguments right? And what are the potential consequences for markets as MMT gains traction, as I expect it will, in political circles? So I, I share your view that MMT ultimately will gain increased traction. And I do think that that is likely to be an inflationary force, right? In its simplest form, you know, we can think about price behavior, which is what we're trying to measure in inflation, right? Inflation being technically an increase in the general price level, right? We can think about that as having two separate sources, right? One is the type of support that you're describing, which is effectively consumption subsidy, right? So a fiscal transfer to households without significant strings or expectations of, of a clawback in the form of increased taxes, right? That is going to lead to an increase in consumption. And so on net, that is going to shift outward in aggregate demand curve. It is unclear how the supply will respond, right? And that ultimately is what kind of holds the key to this. If we start to move in a pattern that restricts supply on a systematic basis, that would include things like increases in corporate taxes, increases in interest rates, 
a reduction in the ability to execute global free trade or subsidized trade from foreign countries in the case of China. Right? If we are unwilling to allow those sources of supply to rise to meet the increase in demand, then sure, you'll see an increase in the general price level. If that increase in the general price level is in turn met by additional consumption support, additional subsidies, a increase in the you know, minimum universal basic income that is distributed to households, then yes, you can set off an inflationary cycle. But that's several steps into the future. Right? We're, we're not there yet. And if anything, most of the behavior that we're seeing, particularly coming out of the coronavirus experience, has been that households have taken that additional income and used it to purchase things like durable goods, new houses, new cars, or used cars are in high demand because of the reduction of supply, appliances of various types, leisure craft, those have exploded. And those are one-time purchases, right? You're not going to buy a second RV next year if you bought one this year. You may increase some aspects of it, but actually, ironically, you're less likely to stay at a hotel next year because you now have an RV. You are less likely to do many of the activities on the services front that you might have done historically when you take a vacation, right? You're less likely to travel in an airplane, for example. So it's not at all clear that we have created a permanent outward shift in demand. What there has largely been to this point is a significant substitution of durable goods for services, right? We're not going back to the restaurant anytime soon. I'm certainly not going to eat two steak dinners next year to compensate for the one I missed this year, right? So we've seen a component of that, but it's not at all clear to me that that's sustainable. And if anything, it may set the stage for recessionary conditions in 2021. A lot of people are debating the question of whether we are on the precipice of a shift that might take a few years, but a shift to secular inflation and that perhaps MMT would be the catalyst that would get us there after this, what is it, 35-year bond bull market now. Some people are saying, okay, we got all the way to almost zero. It's time for that to reverse. But frankly, people have been saying that for like 15 years, and so far they've been wrong. Uh, how do you see this? Is the bond bull market coming to an end? Is there a secular shift to inflation? And are those things necessarily even correlated? So they tend to be correlated to the extent that policymakers respond to them, right? So if the Fed responds to an increase in inflation by hiking interest rates to try to stop that inflation, then obviously you will generate correlation, although the causation will be reversed, right? That was largely the story. You know, I, I can flip the story of the bond bull market for the past 40 years on its head and well, obviously not quite 40 years, but I can flip it on its head and say the reverse of that is that we had inappropriately tight monetary policy over the time period from 1965 to 1982. Right. And so instead of thinking about it from the framework of we have had this extraordinary recovery, I would actually suggest that we had an extended time period in which monetary policy ran way too tight relative to the expansion of the labor force and the population and the desire for consumption of durable goods under that setting, right? So people tend to confuse the story of the 1970s. They think of it as a hyperinflationary type environment that the U.S. was losing control. What was really happening in the 1970s was that we had an unprecedented expansion of households and labor force. Right, all of which needed new durable goods to meet their consumption objectives. The Fed misinterpreted that information, hiked interest rates to levels that they never should have been hiked to, 
and in response created the conditions of the resurgence that we've seen over the past, give or take, 35 to 40 years. Mike, I want to pick up on the word hyperinflation that you just used, because I notice a resurgence in popularity of this term, and particularly a phrase you just alluded to. You'll hear people say, look, we're going to have hyperinflation, just like the hyperinflation we had in the 1970s. Now, to my understanding of the the textbook definition of that phrase, hyperinflation, what happened in the 1970s has nothing to do with hyperinflation. Please define exactly what does hyperinflation mean? Was the 1970s event or other similar periods of inflation running up into the teens on an annual basis? Is that hyperinflation or is hyperinflation something different? Hyperinflation is something totally different, right? So I'm going to get the technical definition wrong because it's somewhat irrelevant, but it's the the technical definition of hyperinflation is somewhere in the neighborhood of 15% inflation per month, right? Not per year. And so, you know, by an order of magnitude, we never came close to achieving hyperinflation in the United States. What we saw in the 1970s was a fantastic shift outward in the aggregate demand function tied to the baby boomers, tied to women entering the labor force, tied to minorities entering the labor force, and the simultaneous restriction of supply that was created by the Fed's inappropriately tight monetary policy, right? So they effectively prevented the supply curve from shifting outwards. And we had the really unfortunate dynamic associated with uh, oil shocks, et cetera, that took roughly a third of the production capacity in the U.S., combination of the less unfortunate Clean Air Act and the oil shocks of the 1970s that had the unfortunate impact of shifting inward the U.S. production curve, right? About a third of production going into the 1970s was tied to oil-fired generators. That dynamic is just radically, radically different than the collapse of a currency and the collapse of a social system, effectively the ability to tax, to recover currency that occurs in hyperinflationary environments. That's, people tend to completely conflate the two. I, I agree with your, your pushback. We did not have hyperinflation. I think it would be extraordinarily unlikely that we have hyperinflation in the United States, although we certainly could have higher levels of inflation for the reasons we've been talking about. But the underlying characteristic is just a radically different environment. I think this is really important for listeners to understand because a trend that I'm seeing is people, for good reason, think that there is a macro argument that we may be headed for a secular shift back toward inflation from disinflation. I think they're right about that. What they're doing is they're going and researching the Weimar hyperinflation and various other hyperinflations like Zimbabwe that have happened throughout history. And I would argue a hyperinflation like Weimar or Zimbabwe is a completely different phenomenon from secular high inflation like we had in the 1970s. It's the collapse of a currency system. Prices are not going up. The value of money is collapsing, and it creates the illusion of prices going up. But I think what's missing here is, okay, there's really no sane reason to think that the U.S. dollar, at least while it still holds its title as global reserve currency, that's something I want to I want to come back to a little bit later on. But as long as it's still the global reserve currency, I don't think true hyperinflation is even possible. But a return to secular inflation along the lines of what we really did have in the 1970s seems entirely possible, especially in the wake of MMT. So what if we shouldn't be trying to compare this to Weimar Germany or Zimbabwe? What is it that investors should really be looking at? What do we need to get up to speed on here? 
Well, I, I would suggest that you actually want to look at time periods where we have had inflation driven by the forces that you're talking about. And so a good example of that would actually be the U.S. environment post the Roosevelt depreciation of the dollar. That, you know, Luke Roman and others talk about that dynamic. I think it's important to understand that you can't actually have that type of depreciation. You can't have a devaluation of a currency that has a flexible exchange that happens in the markets. Right. And so you would have to see that currency fall significantly versus other currencies, right, including gold. That would be one example. But it's very difficult to actually execute that in a system in which you have a floating system because the market would do that for you before you decided to do it. Right. It would recognize that this dynamic existed. If you look at the 1930s, basically after it would take 1934, you know, we tend to think about that period as one that has deflationary characteristics, but actually average CPI inflation over that time period was north of 4%. And it was driven by precisely the features that we're talking about, restriction of supply, the, the forcing of crops to be fallow, the, uh, the, of crop lands to be fallow, the FDR administration paying people to not plant restrictions on production in terms of what was allowed to be produced in factories, those types of dynamics led to inflationary conditions. But that type of moderate inflation is both largely benign and highly unlikely to show up in a bond market in terms of a, a, federal, a federal reserve policy response. And two, I think largely people misunderstand the dynamics or the importance of that, right? Because it's that type of inflation, by and large, is just a modest loss of purchasing power. It's not a collapse of the currency. It's not a, um, you know, it's not a, an impetus to rush off into alternative currencies or to try to protect your assets. I think you need to be just very cognizant that we could enter into a regime that because of restrictions of supply, i.e. reduced supply from China or other regions, that we could have inflationary conditions. Now, some of those conditions are also very difficult to point to and say that they're equivalent, right? So global population was growing rapidly over that time period. Over the time period of the 1930s, the U.S. labor force and population grew by roughly 25%, right? We, we just don't have those conditions in the developed world. If anything, we're actually seeing negative population pressures in most regimes. And that tends to result in an inward shift of aggregate demand that would be even worse if we're talking about a situation where aggregate supply is restricted and therefore purchasing power or surplus is reduced. Right. So I think you could actually end up with a, you know, low inflation, but very stagnant type environment for an extended period of time if that's the outcome. Right. And that tends to lead to increased political pressure for even more MMT and conflict for finding somebody else to blame. And I, I do think that there are features of that that exist. Now, what a lot of people are predicting is that if that type of inflation resurfaces and there is still an impetus for the government to try to maintain the, the lowest interest rates that it possibly can, which seems to be the policy directive for now, that leads to negative real rates. That has to be good for gold. Gold bugs are jumping for joy, expecting $10,000 gold prices by the end of next year. Uh, or maybe that's an exaggeration, but certainly by the end of the decade, a lot of people think we're going to, you know, somewhere between five and $10,000 an ounce gold because of these policies and this potential inflation shift that they see on the horizon. Is that sane thinking? Is that the right way to think about this or are they missing something? 
Well, I, I think it's certainly possible, right? I mean, for gold to go to give or take 5,000 within a decade would really only be a, a rate of appreciation somewhere in the neighborhood of 7%, right? Is that impossible? No. Is it a probable outcome? It really depends, right? I mean, one of the things that we wrote about in March was the dynamics of policy response. And we're seeing that play out in real time, right? Where increasingly policymakers turn to risk markets and say, what does the expectations channel tell us about forward economic activity? In March, it was very clear that we were facing the worst recession in history, right? We'd had the biggest stock market, the most rapid stock market collapse outside of what we saw in the market event of 1987. You know, and we've, since then, we've seen the most rapid recovery. And as a result, we're seeing policymakers dither in terms of their response function, right? Do we need another significant correction to get them to take that next step? I, I would suggest that it's much harder for policymakers to behave in a radical fashion unless we receive those types of signals. And so I would just broadly suggest that the answer is it depends, right? If events conspire to force a very aggressive response, then yes, gold will probably appreciate quite significantly. Will it go to 10,000? And would we expect 10,000 to, would we expect the behavior that we're seeing in terms of multiple expansion, would that be consistent with gold going to 10,000? Actually, it's one of the things that we're doing some work on right now. History would suggest the opposite is true. That if gold is going to go to 10,000, that actually an equity risk premium or the PEs you would expect to contract dramatically. Because you don't pay a lot for property rights, which is really what you're doing when you buy an equity. You don't pay a lot for that in an unstable system. Right? It's part of the reason why emerging markets tend to trade at a discount, despite what many view as better growth opportunities. Right? You just the stability of the system is not such that you can look at an equity and say, you know, I'm going to pay, you know, 10 years worth of revenue or 100 times earnings for a company. It just doesn't make any sense. Mike, something I've been thinking about for more than a decade is whether the U.S. dollar's days are numbered as the world's global reserve currency. And it seems like that topic has gained a lot of popularity lately. Seems to me like what this really comes down to is the U.S. dollar remains the world's global reserve currency for one reason and one reason only, which is there simply is no viable alternative today. Seems to me like a lot of people around the world have increasing impetus or motivation to try and find one. Would you agree with that? And if so, what do you think the greatest threats are in terms of what uh, other nations might do to look for an alternative to the dollar? So I, I think your observation that there is no alternative is probably the right one. And there are always risks to the replacement of the reserve currency. But again, it tends to be the function of a violent shift. And so the transition from the British pound to the U.S. dollar was a result of the aftermath of World War I, where the British were forced to borrow in large size from the Americans. And ultimately, that meant that the supply of pounds to the global regime was far greater than could be maintained. Right, And simultaneously, the U.K. tried to move back to the gold standard levels, which created inappropriately tight monetary policy, etc., that type of transition, of course, can occur if there's a, a event of that type of magnitude that changes the U.S. status in the world. But that's hard to achieve, right? I mean, it would require a legitimate repudiation of the dynamics of the Pax Americana, where it became clear that the U.S. was no longer able to enforce property rights or claims in regions around the world. 
we still are a long way away from that. While there are potential rivals in the form of a unified Europe, which took its strongest form and uh, you know under the euro and has created its own challenges, also you have to consider China as a somewhat legitimate threat to that dynamic. Um, they're just far from clear replacements, right? And if anything, while people talk about the loss of reserve currency status, the U.S. share of global trade, when properly measured, right, by looking across regions, not necessarily states, has continued to rise, right? It's become more dominant, not less dominant. Now, in terms of the incentive structure that you refer to, the U.S. has also become much more aggressive in terms of using or weaponizing the dollar. And that does create incentives for people to respond. But it's very difficult to openly mount a challenge to the global hegemon, right? It's just it's it would require an overt act that would have significantly negative impacts on most of the countries that are talking about this, which by and large are running current account surpluses, which means that they are beholden to the U.S. to buy their goods and services. That's just it's going to be really, really hard to replace that. Mike, here's my contention on how that might be replaced. And I I wrote a book about this a couple of years ago. Uh, I think that the invention of the secure digital bearer asset, which was invented by the Bitcoin crowd several years ago, is a game changer. I think it's going to completely change the course of human history. Now, I don't mean that I think Bitcoin is going to replace the dollar in any capacity. What I do mean is that the underlying technology, a digital bearer asset, which can securely operate in a decentralized global network and truly act as a bearer asset, I think that provides the foundation for the creation of a digital currency system with the opposite objectives of Bitcoin. Bitcoin was designed to defeat monetary policy, to essentially resist the existence of the fractional reserve banking system. I anticipate that Silicon Valley will eventually invent a digital currency system designed to be sold to central bankers, one that delivers radically enhanced monetary policy capabilities, whereas Bitcoin was designed to defeat monetary policy, something that is designed to be sold to central bankers as a superior alternative to the U.S. dollar. And although that unto itself is a pretty compelling sales pitch to replace the U.S. dollar, but boy, it's hard to replace something that's as entrenched as the dollar is. Look at the number of countries around the world that are so frustrated by the weaponization of the dollar that you just described. And I think that provides the adoption catalyst needed to adopt that digital currency. If that were to happen and suddenly the U.S. government didn't have its position of hegemonic control over the financial system, I think things could get ugly. It could easily start a war, but I don't think that that war would necessarily prevent the new currency system from taking over. Um, Those are obviously some pretty extreme out there views. I'm very curious to get your perspective. Am I crazy to think these things? I don't think you're crazy to think these things. I think that like most futurist views, it's, you know, somewhat perpetually 10 to 20 years off into the future. And by the time we get there, we realize it was a hundred years off into the future. The challenge with that view is I, I would say twofold. One is it doesn't matter how many countries are upset about stuff. It's a little bit like children on the playground, right? They can be upset about the school bully, but until one of them hits puberty and can legitimately challenge him, it doesn't really matter, right? He's still going to take your lunch money. And the U.S. has been, by and large, quite benign in its behavior relative to prior global hegemons, 
right? Um, I'm frequently frequently cite the dynamics of the Roman Republic and its transition to the Roman Empire. You know, one of the, the best examples of that type of dynamic is one of the kings of a neighboring kingdom donated, quote unquote, his country upon his death to the Romans, right? And you look at this, you're like, well, wh- why in the world would you give the country to the Romans? The reality is you gave it because otherwise they were going to take it, right? And you were hoping to secure better and more favorable terms. I think by and large, the world has taken for granted that the U.S. is going to behave in a benign fashion if those types of challenges occur. And the U.S. is somewhat uniquely positioned globally as controlling its own island, right? If you think about it from the dynamics of a castle, we've got the world's best moats on the east and the west. We have a you know somewhat incompetent barrier to entry to the south. And we've got a frozen tundra to the north with its denizens huddled around our village gates, right? If we decide that we're going to get serious about exploiting our position as the global hegemon, I don't think there's a chance that the rest of the world is prepared for that, at least yet, right? If they decide to build their own militaries, if they decide to finance those components, if they decide that they're going to risk their women and children, then sure, that can happen. But I think it's a long way away. And if I correctly understand, this is about military dominance, and and certainly history teaches us that the global reserve currency status has gone to the country with the strongest military. Doesn't the emergence of hypersonic carrier killer missiles from China and some of the other military developments that suggest the U.S. no longer is an undefeatable force of power in the world, does that change the game, or do you really need to get to the point where the U.S. is not only undefeatable, but has actually been defeated in some capacity before the the currency can change. Yeah, I I would lean towards that dynamic. And I would suggest that while those are certainly impressive military technology, as were German V2 rockets, you know, and uh, the dynamics of Blitzkrieg, we'll eventually figure out solutions to them, right? The U.S. tends not to go out and broadcast what it is capable of doing. I would be surprised that the you know, the local bully reveals all of his, at least if he's a smart player, reveals all of his capabilities. It's much more likely that there's a fake challenger that's trying to point to their strengths in the hope that they will get others to follow them. Mike, you're describing military might as the the key determinant here. Are you expecting a military conflict? Obviously, we have big escalation of tension between U.S. and China and so forth. Do you think that a shooting war between the U.S. and another sovereign nation is on the horizon? And if so, uh, who are the potential combatants and what does it look like and what does it mean for the world? So I, I actually hope that we don't have that. And I would say to expect that would be somewhat foolish, right? My biggest fear, as I describe the dynamics that I refer to, is is that the U.S. inappropriately responds and more aggressively responds to defend these these dynamics that I've described than they have to. Right. The biggest risk that we have as the United States is that we cease being what we have historically represented, a beacon of, quote unquote, freedom. Right. And you can debate that all you want. But the U.S. has historically been one of the primary destinations for those who are choosing to leave unfavorable conditions in the hope of a better life, right? There's a very real chance that we break that system as we're moving to defend what we perceive to be our strengths. I hope that's not the case. 
Mike, before we close, I want to shift gears here and talk about some of the work that you're doing at Logica. I think that you're just an absolutely brilliant thinker, and you've got a lot of terrific perspective on markets and where they're headed. You used to be kind of locked away behind a compliance wall and couldn't talk to anybody. These days at Logica, you've got the freedom to do some writing. So please tell our listeners what you do at Logica. Certainly, we do have a very large accredited investor base who may be interested in some of your investment offerings. But for everyone else, I think there are some very interesting white papers and other resources available at LogicaFunds.com. Please tell us about that as well. So we use our website to provide access to our research and our white papers. We've written on the dynamics of policy in the time of pandemics. We've written about the value growth or value momentum debate that's currently in play. We recently put out a piece talking about the dynamics of the option skew, the call option skew that's caught a lot of attention and explained that largely in the form of reduced supply combined with the aspects of demand that is, has been well telegraphed. And we're about to put a piece out talking about the dynamics of the gold market. And so I would encourage people to check that out from a product standpoint. Our flagship product is the Logica Absolute Return product. It is only available to accredited investors and institutions. Uh, We do partner with a couple of other groups to provide access to our vehicles. And so people are more than welcome to register and reach out in terms of that information. We encourage them to do so. Well, Mike, I can't thank you enough for a terrific interview. Patrick Ceresna and I will be back as Macro Voices continues right after this message from our sponsor. Farmland investing has been a popular macro trend among billionaires and big institutions for the last decade. But the high cost of buying an entire farm put this asset class out of reach to all but big institutions and the ultra-rich. FarmTogether.com allows any accredited investor to invest in fractional ownership of several different categories of farmland. I recently did a full-length interview with FarmTogether.com founder and CEO Artem Milinchuk. We discussed the macro argument for farmland investing, performance and correlation comparisons to conventional asset classes, and the different types of farmland and their investment characteristics. If you're an accredited investor, I recommend that you listen to that interview and learn why farmland investing might be a fit for your portfolio. You can find the download link in your Research Roundup email. Or just type the word farmland into the search box on our homepage at macrovoices.com. Check out farmtogether.com today. You'll be glad you did. Macro Voices is a listener-driven program. Please email requests for specific future interview guests to requests at macrovoices.com. We also welcome your suggestions for how we can improve the program. Now, back to your hosts, Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna. Eric, it was great to have Mike on the show. What did you take away from the interview? Well, I really enjoyed it. Frankly, I would have loved to go deep on the passive investing topic because Mike's research is so compelling. Uh, he and I talked off the air and we both felt like, hey, he's done that a couple of times. He did it with Dimitri Kofinas. He did it with uh, Grant Williams. And I'd rather just let our listeners listen to that topic where Grant did such a beautiful job with that interview and get to something else. As far as the the passive investing effects, boy, figuring out 
what the catalyst is for the unwind of that passive investing trade. As Mike said, the rules here are pretty simple. Money's flowing into asset managers, they buy. Money's flowing out, they sell. So what is it that causes redemptions? Is it a demographic wave of baby boomers retiring? You know, what what is it that brings about that self-reinforcing vicious cycle of selling that I think could be coming someday? Or do we see this go the other direction where some of those other factors we talk about cause a melt up to occur before we can ever get to the unwind of this massive buildup that's a result of passive investing? Uh, I don't know what the answer is, but let's go ahead and dive into our post-game chart book. Patrick, you put another great deck together. Listeners, you'll find the download link in your Research Roundup email. If you don't have a Research Roundup email, just go to our homepage at macrovoices.com. Click the red button that says Looking for the Downloads. Patrick, page two, S&P futures. Boy, the last time we got a correction that panicked everybody and made them say, oh, my God, oh, my God, the sky is falling. The the bear market is resuming. It only lasted a few days and it was over. Now, is this one over? That's a really great question. I titled this week's uh, entire chart book as Was It Enough? And really what's interesting is uh, I I typically don't put moving averages and things like that on the charts, but I think the 50-day moving average is particularly interesting when you're going right across the entire spectrum of stocks and markets. And I wanted to really reflect on that. So what we typically have seen in the past is market corrections will you know do 50% retracements of prior rises they'll come down to the moving averages and the buy on dip traders systematically buy the dip and it usually lasts you know these 3 to 5 days and the traders come back in and and start their accumulation and so we got exactly that in a textbook fashion and really this is actually an incredibly important moment the way i would describe it is it's like the market walked to the edge of the cliff and looked over the side but didn't lose its footing and this is a, a really important next uh, few trading sessions because the bulls would typically and did in first reaction put together the rebound the this up day we saw 80 s p points rebounding off the low the question now, is that enough to trigger the buyers, a feedback loop where the buyers now buy the dip and accumulate it? And it's so important to find that out because the gamma flip zone and all of these technical sell signals are all just right below the zone. And I know you were suggesting that support line around the uh, 3225 uh, area where those highs came in in June. But uh, in my mind, if the bulls don't hold the line here, there's an air pocket sitting right underneath. And I'm not trying to say it has to be the next bear market crash, or even though I think that there's a reasonable chance it could happen. I do think that there, the market correction will quickly tack on two to 300 S&P points lower if this support line doesn't hold. And so so watching what the market does here in the next 24 to 48 hours is going to be really important. Let's move on to chart three, which is Tesla. Now, our good friend Jim Bianco at Bianco Research has written quite a bit about Tesla, observing that probably what's been driving this fierce upside speculation was a lot of belief on on speculators' part that Tesla would be added to the S&P 500 stock index. And it was the event of that not happening, the, the fact that Tesla was passed over and not included in the index, that appears to have marked the top here. Uh, are we seeing a meaningful 
bounce? Is the is the reaction to the S and P non inclusion over and the rally set to continue, or is this just a, a little dead cat bounce off a technical level before the bottom falls out? You know, Eric, it's noteworthy to also point out that Elon Musk did that capital raise right at the uh, near the market tops, taking advantage of those very high prices. The observation that I wanted to make on Tesla is is twofold. Well, first of all, it bounced off the 50-day. It seems to be a, a reoccurring theme in so many of these charts that the corrections mean revert back to an, uh, its 50-day uh, averages, which technically is, is common. And we see that Tesla made that drop. But what I'm curious about, and if you notice those three red arrows, I marked the key tops that happened on Tesla during each prior edition. Advance. And what's particularly interesting is, is after one of those highs are put in, there's often some form of a retest of those highs. And I'm really curious whether Tesla will be able to muster up a, a rebound back towards its highs to mark some sort of a short to intermediate top. But uh, there's also a lot of technicians out there talking about this kind of 400 to 425 area. And it'll be if uh, all the bulls muster up on Tesla is, uh, is just a, a small rebound up to those levels. It may very well be that uh, not only a top is in, but uh, a, a much deeper, more uh, meaningful market correction may be underway. And so I think that's really interesting. And, th- and using that as a theme to go to chart uh, page four, the chart of Apple, again, Apple corrected. It was about a 50% retracement down to its 50-day moving average, a very typical place where one would anticipate a buy on dip to happen. Happen. And so we're seeing all of these markets all coming to the same edge of the cliff moment. And the, initially, the buy on dip traders did show up and they did rebound it off their lows. And now the big question in the next few days, will they be able to make any rally stick? Because if the bears sense that there's no more buying pressure to take it higher, they'll start hammering it pretty hard. And I think that that's going to be the big theme. And by the time we're on the next Macro Voices episode next week, we're going to have a lot revealed in terms of what these trends are that have emerged, right? Now, I think it's really interesting to look at page five, because what a stark contrast between the shape of the S&P 500, you know, really just accelerating into what might have been a blow off top, or maybe it was just a little correction. But we've seen really since June, nothing but trading sideways on the Eurostoxx 50 index. What's going on there? Well, if I told you that this was the crude oil chart, would you have believed me? (laughs) <laughs> it's, it looks like it, except it, it, it doesn't have the, the down move that we just went exactly. through. Exactly. Uh, and uh, it's, it's interesting, but, uh, but it really goes to show that the vast majority of the equity price action was very much focused on the American market. And a lot of these other major developed markets have really been just dead money. I mean, if you look at the charts on the Aussie 200 or on the London FTSE, very weak charts, the, the, this certain certainly has not been a very broad global equity rally. This has been very U.S.-centric. And what will be interesting is uh, is uh, we're hovering right along that 50-day, no different than that crude oil chart. It'll be interesting if the market was to break, whether the euro stock will break with it and whether this was just a topping formation in at least a bear market in the euro stock. And that's uh, something that I'm going to be watching definitely in the next week. 
Let's move on to gold futures on page six. Uh, it seems like that moving average line that you've got drawn in red, you know, we're pretty much always holding above it. But then again, the excursion in March was at least a short-term move below it. Are we going to see another one of those in gold here, or are we going to just head higher from here? Well, again, I think that the whole theme of the chart book was to see how all these different securities are all lined up with this 50-day moving average. And this is why I was describing at the beginning is everything seems to be at the edge of a cliff, hasn't gone over, but did take a peek over the side. And we're going to find out here in the next week whether or not these key support lines give out. You were pointing out in the market wrap at the beginning that triangle formation that seems to be forming as into a this coiling wedge and usually these wedges resolve with some sort of an explosive move and we can speculate on which direction that is but i mean if the whole market starts to sell here we've seen in the past that gold does succumb to some of the uh, the correlation to the markets and it does at least initially sell if it is a bit of a broader liquidity event i know i've i've heard a number of people speculate that they think that gold will decouple this time around and not participate in a correction, but the jury is still out. Uh, I, I want, I'm curious which way this will break. So far, gold has done a pretty good job holding that 50-day moving average. Well, Patrick, I, I really uh, have to disagree with some of the views that you hear out there, and I've heard them too. You know, It doesn't matter how strong the fundamentals are to the upside for gold. If people are panicking and uh, markets are crashing and there's a rush to liquidity, people end up panicking and selling everything, whether it makes logical sense and, or not, and whether it jibes with fundamental arguments or not. It just stuff gets sold off. I'd love to see that happen to gold. It would be a great buying opportunity to pick up some more. Right. So uh, what I want to do is move on to chart seven. And particularly, I wanted to focus on that Euro USD. I know you were talking about the Dixie and the fact that the dollar index really needed to break above 94 to really kind of advertise a bottom is being in. But what, I, what I'm particularly watching today is the fact that we had the ECB come out with their press conference and their monetary policy. And the first reaction was the euro went higher. But what I have through my uh, years of trading noticed is that usually the first reaction to a, a central bank announcement tends to be faded the other way. And what will be interesting to see is that if this attempt to rally the euro fades and and we find ourselves trading back below 118 and heading lower, that could really be the first sign that US dollar bottom is in place, especially considering the weighting that the euro has inside the, the dollar index. But we saw a pretty big breakdown in the pound sterling and also sorts of uh, other things starting to happen. Maybe uh, the short-term bottom may be in on the dollar. And this is something that I, I'm looking for the cue from the euro in the next few trading sessions. Anyway, Eric, though, I wanted to move on to crude oil because I know you did a great job describing it in, in the uh, market wrap, but I really wanted to just show how uh, that consolidation just broke to that downside. And now I particularly show now the October contract because whenever we show the continuous contract, it shows that minus 40 print, which just uh, mutates the chart. But when you're looking here, I mean, we put some pretty meaningful bottoms in oil back in March and April. And clearly, 
oil has the, or is at least advertising that it's going for some form of a retest to establish a longer term bottom. But do you feel that generally that uh, the major lows of oil are in and that this is just a retest of some form along the bottom end? Well, I think what's probably going on here is a change of analysts' fundamental sentiment. Now, I certainly agree that the bottom is in at minus $37 or whatever we saw in the May contract. We're not going to minus $47 uh, you know, on the October contract. That's not going to happen. But let's just talk about why is it that we saw such a, a brisk rally off of the April lows and then the consolidation that we've seen ever since the middle of June or the beginning of June has been a steady drift higher, even when you would have expected some kind of natural retracement. Well, I think what was going on there is most analysts are looking at this saying, look, they see the same thing that Art Berman told Macro Voices listeners back in early June when we had him on the program, which is, look, guys, there's plenty of room for this market to go down over the summer. But eventually in Q4, we're going to see U.S. production fall off a cliff because the rig count just has not recovered. They're not making new ones anymore. We got to go through the inventory of drilled but uncompleted wells. Maybe there's room for downside in the summer, but you get to Q4 and you're going to see U.S. production falling off a cliff. I think the fact that everyone knew that Q4 was eventually going to bring us a sharp decline in U.S. production is what was holding the market up and allowing it to just very slowly edge higher all throughout the summer in anticipation of a move up as U.S. production declined. Then what actually happened is, oh my gosh, these refinery runs are telling us that, yeah, we may still expect U.S. production to decline. But first of all, it hasn't declined that much yet. And what has declined a lot is demand as measured by refinery runs. So people are saying, oh my gosh, this is going to be a demand story, not a supply story. And it's an ugly one. Now, how bearish is that? How much farther do we have to go? I don't think it's minus 37 again. Is it back down to 30 or low 30s, I won't be at all surprised by that. In fact, that's my base case is, is somewhere between 30 and $34 is, uh, is where this market bottoms. What would it take to get it to 26? Just a, a little bit worse demand picture and maybe a little bit of laziness in the data so that we don't see that decline in U.S. production as soon as people thought. We could easily get back down to 26. 26 is a pretty significant support level to get markedly below that. I think you'd really have to have some significant news or, or change in outlook. But whether we're done here, you know, having tested 36 or we get to 26 or something in between, I'm not really sure. Lower than 26, I think it would take something pretty big to make that happen. But Patrick, I want to come back to lumber futures, which we talked about last week or the week before on page nine. Now, when you and I saw this just runaway rally to the upside, we both thought, okay, what must be going on is because of the pandemic, there is a rush for into high-end construction. People want to build that house in the countryside to move out of the city. And probably with the logistics of the crisis, it's really putting a huge demand on lumber. All of the sudden, everything turned around and went into reverse, and we've seen several limit-down days where the market was just locked at a limit-down condition, one, two, three, and we're way back down here. I've got to be honest, Patrick, I have no clue what brought this about. Do you have any insight on what might be the fundamental driver? 
Uh, well, I don't know about the fundamental driver, but it certainly was that lumber went parabolic. We joked about the fact that this was the Tesla chart, and it's really been going parabolic during the same time as the Apple and Tesla moves were happening. And uh, it was just, I think, just this risk on impulse and lumber through the, uh, the home builders and everything. That's just a place where all the money was flowing. What's amazing is uh, I don't know if there, I don't think there is any correlation to it, but the coincidence, but uh, lumber literally put in its top the same day that Tesla did. And it really, we've seen the same type of pullback. And what's amazing is we don't too often get the opportunity to see these limit down days where, like there were in the good old days of futures trading, where literally you'd go lock limit down day after day, giving no window for traders to be able to get out. And to see this happening in the lumber futures, this many days in a row is is uh, certainly a little bit for the history books, but nonetheless, uh, definitely a mean reversion. We lost like 25% on lumber prices in, in a span of just five, six days. And so it's uh, certainly something that I'm going to be watching here in the days to come. Uh, as to a fundamental reason, I just I think everything was just so overbought that uh, I think that it's just so natural from a reflexivity perspective for things to just take a break and backfill and some profit take to be done, right? Listeners, if you want to look over Patrick's shoulder while he watches this and other markets in coming days, be sure to get a free two-week trial of Patrick's service, Big Picture Trading. We're going to leave it there for this week's show. This episode of Macro Voices was made possible by FarmTogether.com, making farmland investing a trillion-dollar asset class available to all accredited investors, and by TopTradersUnplugged.com. Remember to get the ultimate guide to the best investing books ever written at toptradersunplugged.com forward slash macro guide. For information on sponsoring Macro Voices, please visit macrovoices.com forward slash sponsor info. Listeners, be sure to register a free account at macrovoices.com. The benefit to you is you'll receive our research roundup email, which provides you with all of the best free content that we could find on the internet each week, including downloads associated with our guest appearances, as well as, of course, our post-game chart books. Patrick, tell them what they can expect to find in this week's research roundup. Well, this week, you're going to find the transcript for today's interview, as well as the link to the Mike Green slide deck and the chart book we just discussed in the postgame. There's also a link to a CNBC interview with Stan Druckenmiller calling stocks an absolute raging mania, and a link to a Jeffrey Snyder article on re-recession not required. And so you'll find this and so much more in this week's research roundup. So that does it for this week's episode. We appreciate all the feedback and support we get from our listeners, and we're always looking for suggestions on how we can make the program even better. Now, for those of our listeners that write or blog about the markets and would like to share that content with our listeners, send us an email at researchroundup at macrovoices.com or tag it with the MVRR hashtag on Twitter and we will consider it for our weekly distributions. If you have not already, follow our main Twitter account at macrovoices for all the most recent updates and releases. You can also follow Eric on Twitter at Eric S. Townsend and myself at Patrick Ceresna. On behalf of Eric Townsend and myself, thank you for listening and we'll see you all next week. That concludes this edition of Macro Voices. Be sure to tune in each week to hear feature interviews with the brightest minds in finance and macroeconomics. 
Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com, the Internet's premier source of online education for traders. Please visit BigPictureTrading.com for more information. Please register your free account at MacroVoices.com. Once registered, you'll receive our free weekly research roundup email containing links to supporting documents from our featured guests and the very best free financial content our volunteer research team could find on the Internet each week. You'll also gain access to our free listener discussion forums and research library. And the more registered users we have, the more we'll be able to recruit high-profile feature interview guests for future programs. So please register your free account today at MacroVoices.com if you haven't already. You can subscribe to Macro Voices on iTunes to have Macro Voices automatically delivered to your mobile device each week free of charge. You can email questions for the program to mailbag at macrovoices.com and we'll answer your questions on the air from time to time in our mailbag segment. Macro Voices is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Macro Voices should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Macro Voices are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Macro Voices, its producers, sponsors, and hosts Eric Townsend and Patrick Ceresna shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Macro Voices. Macro Voices is made possible by sponsorship from BigPictureTrading.com and by funding from Fourth Turning Capital Management, LLC. For more information, visit MacroVoices.com.